0: If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold.
1: This is Voices in AI brought to you by Giga Home, and I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Andrea Tomas. She is many things. She is the co-founder and CEO of Diligent Robotics. She is also uh, at the University of Texas at Austin, where she's an associate professor leading the robotics lab in the electrical and computer engineering department. So she holds a master's degree from MIT and a PhD from there as well. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, um, the opening line on your LinkedIn says I'm a human robotics interaction specialist and build social robot assistants. Just those 10 or so words, we could talk about uh, our whole time. Can you just parse all of that out and tell me what that what that means? Yeah,
0: so I've always been fascinated with getting robots to be able to work side by side with people. Um so I'm really I'm really interested in like all of my academic work has been around developing the algorithms and control systems and you know behavior systems that are going to allow a robot to work next to a person and you know that's different than when a robot has to just do a task by itself and when you add you know working side by side with a person now you have to have your control algorithm has to think about well what do i do if the person Gets in my way. How do I think about stopping or, or you know, making sure that I'm in the right place with, a, with with respect to the person? And then all of your perception algorithms have to think about, you know, dealing with people. Um, and, you know, a lot of the things that we think about in terms of being social and you know, the social part of the intelligence is I'm really interested in the nonverbal cues that people use every day, all day long to just get around the world together and you know we don't get in each other's way we don't we don't just you know run around in the halls bumping into each other and so in order to have robots that are going around the halls not bumping into each other and people, I think those same kinds of social conventions and social cues are going to be really important. So I've been kind of fascinated in thinking about you know what are the kind of nonverbal cues that are going to be important to put on robots and, and agents in the environment and um, and why and what kind of functional purpose those cues can serve.
1: Do you know um, about that? <coughs> situation in Japan where these researchers had a robot and they were teaching how to walk in a uh, shopping mall and these kids would always like step in front of it and then they would turn and it would try to get around them and they would step in front of it and they ended up like beating it with water bottles and abusing it and they ended up making the robots programming be that if you see a bunch of short people and no tall people no adults Run towards a tall person. <laughs> wow. And these kids would abuse the robots. And then later they would ask them, Did you think that the robot was feeling um, bad about what you were doing to it? And three quarters of the kids said yes. They thought they were... So why is it, why, well, first of all, does that surprise you? And second, why is it that these kids would. Um, would do that, and in spite of feeling like the robot is at least experiencing something.
0: Yeah, no, I so I don't know that exact example that you're giving, but um, I think it's it doesn't surprise me entirely. Um, I know that you know really it's this has been a topic in AI and robotics for a long time. You know, one of the um, one of the people who's thought about this the most might be Sherry Turkle, who looks at you know, how kids are approaching these new objects in the world. You know, so we have this new notion of object permanence. You know, when you're a child, you learn that you know, there's objects and there's agents. And now we have these things that are kind of in the middle that are, you know, a robot is not quite an object, not quite, not quite an agent, so do I, do I apply my kind of social agent? things that I know about towards this thing, or do I apply my object thing, right? You know, it's okay to like kick an object and see if it breaks, and so so there's some of that testing, I think, that's happening, especially with children, but also with adults. I think with robotics, you see a new robot and you're oh, what can it do? And let me get in front of its camera and see what it's going to do, and I think um, as these new kinds of half object, half agent kind of things are making it their way into society, it's. You know, these are sort of natural tests that people are running. Um, uh, I think the social implication for kids and children is even more um, important for us to think about how to sort of, you know, think about, you know, how to educate around social norms, what's okay, what's not okay, and how we treat people and, you know, how does that translate and how to treat people like, like a person. Right,
1: of the hitchhiking robot that got beaten up and left for dead, and where was that? It was in North America somewhere. I don't know that one. Oh, okay. (laughs) They tried to get this robot to basically go hitchhike its way across the country. And it it was found, you know, buried in a shallow grave, as it were. I don't know exactly what the thing is. And then, it's interesting because Sony sent us, sent my, me personally, uh, an Abo, Mm -hmm. their little little robot dog, to try for a week, and uh, and, and what was interesting about that to me is, first of all, I had these, you know, big uh, eyes that were uh, high-resolution screens, so it could emote. Right. And I noticed that when my, I noticed it scared the cats, uh, <laughs> but I noticed that when uh, my family members would pick it up, they would absentmindedly stroke it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then um, I noticed that my wife and daughter complained that, when you're trying to shape its behavior, you're supposed to whack it on the nose.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: And that bothered them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you grimaced when I said that. What are your thoughts on that as a feedback loop, and why why did it bother them? Why would that be bad? Does that make you more likely to do that to a real dog, do you think?
0: I mean, I think that, you know, it is, it is a training behavior, and I think that... You know, if especially if you're if you're starting to form an emotional attachment to this object, this dog um, agent, then um, it does start to feel like, well, I don't want to do behaviors towards that dog that you know, this robot dog that I wouldn't do towards a normal dog. Um, so there's, and so I think that there's decisions we can make about the kinds of interactions that. That a robot responds to, that is going to encourage or discourage that kind of behavior too. And so just making that available of you know hitting the the dog robot as being part of the normal way that you're supposed to shape its behavior, you know that kind of you know says something about how you think the robot should be treated and maybe how you think dogs should be treated. And so I think that's what makes people uncomfortable about it.
1: Do you worry that? Do you worry that with these uh, devices, um, I won't say their names because if somebody's playing this at home and they're listening to it, it will activate them, but the well-known ones by Amazon and Google and all that. Uh, I noticed that uh, when when they're talking, you know, you ask them a question, they're giving you all this stuff, you just interrupt them and tell them to be quiet. Does that, do you think... Have the effect? Could it have the effect of making people rude to other people?
0: I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that personally, I um, scold my children if they are rude to the devices, and um, just because that's not how you're supposed to talk in general, and it's a practicing, practicing a way to talk. I would love to (laughs) hear more about that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, how do you? How do you? well, Without going into because what's roughly their age band? Are they under ten? Elementary 10? school. Okay. Yeah. So what's your? Exp- if I were one of them, how would you explain to me why you shouldn't cut off the device?
0: Well, they were doing this kind of testing behavior exactly like you were talking about the the kids in the shopping mall, and you know they were my, they were not allowed to say shut up in our house, and so they were trying out saying shut up to the devices, and so they got in trouble for that. And so it was interesting that they would certainly have never said that in our house to another person that was visiting or in the house because they know that that's just not okay, and they would get. In in a lot of trouble, but they were trying out like, oh, maybe it's okay to like use these phrases with So were they testing device? the device or testing you? I think both. <laughs> I think both. They were kind of testing the social boundaries and the social norms with these devices.
1: But of course, many people would view that, not in that particular case, but just that concern is very provincial as like a, a sign of, of our times, not that, that our future, um, selves are going to find that almost a comical notion that we would, I remember a Star Trek Next Generation episode where they have a new person in engineering, and she says thank you to the, ro- uh, to the mm-hmm. computer, and Geordi's like, did you just say thank you? And she's like, yeah, i like to bring a little uh, whatever. And he's like, all right, well, you're not yeah. a, um, and so do you think we're so, the, the science is so nascent that all of this stuff's still up in the air, we don't know how it's gonna shake out, or what do you think?
0: I do think it's all still a little up in the air, but I mean, I do think the most important, to me, I think the most important part of this whole um, conversation that we're talking about is the extent to which people's behavior towards these agents or machines does translate to how they treat other people. And if that changes in some significant way from the way we used to treat each other before these devices and agents existed, then I think that's something that we need to address and think about how to deal with as a society.
1: What if somebody offered the notion that they shouldn't have names Hmm. because, you know, C3PO and R2D2 would be very different if um, if they were, you know, Frank and George. They would have a different feel to it. Maybe, and yeah. you wonder that, you know, one of those two devices I mentioned has a, h- a human name mm-hmm. and one of them doesn't. And I right. wonder if the human name is, is, is like we shouldn't do it. It's almost like that it has a name all of a sudden mm-hmm. and it has a voice. And should they have voices that are definitely not human voices or should they try to mimic humans perfectly like in that um, movie with Scarlett Johansson, Her where she voices the AI, and mm-hmm. of course, it's Scarlett Johansson, and it's a person. And so would you, do you think it's odd to be concerned about should they have realistic voices and should they have names?
0: i uh, sorry, I think this is more in a, uh, so this is sort of the general question of how, how human-like should something be on the surface mm-hmm. versus uh, functionally? Um, and so for me, I'm, I've always been really interested in how social cues and, and aspects of our social behavior towards each other is really getting towards some functional goal. Like we're trying not to run into each other in the hallway, or we're trying to you know, decide who's gonna reach for that cookie on the table. And so we're making cues at each other about how we're gonna negotiate in the world. Um, and so, and, and voice has that, as well. So there's something about the nonverbal aspects of voice, the speed at which you're speaking, the the tone that really communicates. It's it's extra features of that communication. You get more information across by using these extra features. And so all of that kind of social cues and nonverbal behavior serves as this communication band between people that are trying to get around in the world. Um, So I think for me, Adding something from that realm of human social behavior to a robot or an agent always has to have that, well, here's why we're doing it because it's going to help the robot get around in the world better. So you know as an example, in um, my work at, at Diligent robotics, we're putting robots into hospitals. And you know part of what we think about is how social should that robot be? I mean, these robots are, at, you know, at work. You know, they're supposed to be, you know, fetching and delivering and providing logistical assistance to frontline clinicians. And, you know, so one argument could be made that actually these things don't need to be social at all. Nobody needs to be sitting around chatting with the robot in the hallway. Um, but for us, we so we layer on aspects of social behavior in ways that are really useful. You know, so if the robot is going down the hallway and it looks to the left, you know that it's gonna be turning to the left pretty soon. And that is a nice cue for people coming, uh, walking around the robot. And we see a distinct difference from you know, the time when we are using that cue and when we're not, people that are kind of giving the robot a wider berth versus kind of treating it like another agent in the hallway. So, um, so those are, I mean, it's just one example of you know, having a really um, justified functional reason behind adding social cues to um, robots and agents. Well, I
1: I do want to get to diligent robotics and all the stuff you're doing there, but uh, I have two more questions along these lines I'd really like to throw at you. So um, I've heard it, I've never verified this, but I've heard it said that uh, a shockingly large number of people who send their Roomba off to be repaired want their actual Roomba back Mm -hmm. and and do you think it is the case that humans form those kind of bonds so easily that almost anything like that becomes something that we uh, have empathy with? So looking with your eyes that you're about to turn is way more human than a Roomba. They yeah. just go back and forth, back and forth, and yet people want that Roomba. And they probably talk to the Roomba or name the Roomba yeah. for that matter. Yeah. Um, so do you think that's almost an unavoidable problem that even if you completely made them inhuman for whatever reason, we would still grow attached to them?
0: Yeah, I think the our propensity to anthropomorphize everything is just phenomenal. We, I mean, we do it with things that aren't even... Moving autonomously, we do it with cars. We do it, you know. I think there's, so I think that is definitely just something that people do to explain complex devices. Yeah, you know, so you you give it a personification, you give it some anthropomorphism, and so something is you know, robots. I think are an, an autonomously moving things. Are just going to unlock that propensity to anthropomorphize and use, explain the agent's behavior with intentionality as the reasoning, Um, and that's just we're kind of hardwired for that. We're we're really good at it. We have you know a lot of people you know they know that their car isn't a person, but it's fun. To think about your car as your buddy and your person, you know, some person that's been along with you for this life journey for the last 10 years. And um, so I think people enjoy it, and we're not gonna avoid that with, and I think it's gonna, we're gonna unlock it even more with robots for sure.
1: And so then think of the other extreme where you have, um, you know, one of the most common use cases they talk about for robots are companions for the elderly. Mm-hmm. Nobody comes to see them in a nursing home. So they should have, uh, if they want one, a, a, a very human, laughing at their joke, hugging them kind of person to sit and chat with all day. Mm-hmm. Do you think, A, that will, will happen, like in the realm of, is that a real thing? Uh, and also there's the use case of kindergarten teachers or places where you don't have enough, you know, if one human teacher to 30 kids or one robot teacher to one kid, what's, what's better?
0: Right.
1: Um what are your thoughts on all of that?
0: I mean, these are really hard questions. i um I think there are you know personally, I think that I'm more drawn to the use cases for robots where there's two sides to the coin. So there's something that the robot's doing that's functionally necessary. So it has a utilitarian task that it's doing in the in the world. but Having a social presence and a social um, intelligence allows you to get that functional task done well in a human environment. So I think you know the cases where you're just building an, a robot for social per, for the social intelligence alone um, are less um, less compelling to me. Um, you know, so to use one of your elder care examples. Um, like one example, I think that has both sides of that coin, is well. You hear about if if you have a, an elder elderly patient that is um, has dementia and maybe goes through episodes of getting confused. Um, there is some evidence that there can, that if you catch that person before they get into an episode of confusion with some. Um, music or sound or something that would kind of bring them back to um, a state of remembering their, their normalcy, then you can kind of keep them from getting really confused and agitated. And so that's one place where I've heard people working on um, those robot companions having both a functional and a social role.
1: And then my last question along these lines is a story um, which I'll set up. Uh, but I'm sure you know, about a man named Weizenbaum back in the 60s. He made a chatbot named Eliza, and it was very simple. And, you know, mm-hmm. it was, uh, you could say, I am feeling bad, and it would say, why are you feeling bad? And he, I am feeling bad because of my mother. What did your mother do to make you feel bad? <clears throat> and Weizenbaum saw that people, knowing it was a chatbot, would pour their heart out to it, and this mm-hmm. really bothered him. And he turned against AI, and, and he said, when the computer says... I understand, it's just a lie. There's no I and nothing understands anything. So I guess my last kind of philosophical question to you is are there areas, and so he concluded there are all these things AIs and robots shouldn't do and they sure shouldn't stand in for human empathy in places like that. Right. So my question to you is do you think there are things that robots shouldn't be built to do? A warfare stuff aside, like mm-hmm. from this kind of ethical standpoint.
0: Um, that, that they shouldn't be built to do. I mean, so I think that um, I'm, I'm really, fo- I think that I don't like the idea of building robots that are going to replace any kind of human connection Um, and so I think that for me I think it would always be about augmenting that connection. So in the Eliza example if people were getting something out of that chat with Eliza that they were never going to open up to another person about then I could I could see an argument for you know maybe that's a good augmentation to you know all of the different ways that a person is is dealing with their feelings Um, and The other kind of philosophical, you know, bent to put on this is I really like to look at um, this as a spectrum. And there's a designer, um, Don Norman, who talks about emotional machines and how, and a lot of has a lot. He has a lot to say about um, some of the things that we're discussing here, like what. you know whether it's okay for things to pull on your heartstrings, and in how like objects can be designed to k- kind of evoke a feeling or yeah, or not, and, um, and talks a lot about anthropomorphism and like why do we anthropomorphize things? But you know, one of the things that I think is nice about the way he frames it is that it, it's not black or white. Like you can have something that is emotionally evocative, like Eliza. Like there's nothing underneath. It's really just it's just a surface level social intelligence. It's completely pretending to be socially intelligent and nothing underneath. Like Weizenbaum's saying, there's no eye and there's no, no nothing underneath. Versus um, you know something that is that does have a little bit more underneath. Uh, where you know if you have the robot that's looking to the left because it's trying to communicate something to you, that does sort of start to have more of a reason for that social evocation. And so, I think you have that spectrum, and I have different feelings about where we should, um, I have different feelings about whether it's a good idea to put these emotionally evocative things out in the world versus things that are really, they have something beneath that social evocative.
1: You're saying you have a nuanced view of it, or you're conflicted by it, like you, you go back and forth?
0: Oh no, I think that I, I feel less inclined for us to put a lot of socially evocative things into the world and more inclined that if we are putting things into the world that are basically trying to respect human social norms and human social cues, but they're evoking some of these behaviors and, and things for the same reasons that people do, it becomes a communication device more than a you know, charlatan kind of
1: so that the, the, the robot will look to the left if it's going to turn left, but it won't say, so, working hard or hardly working, ha, 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 as it goes past the person.
0: Exactly, exactly. So, um,
1: so you actually, uh, you know, I get, I had these conversations, uh, so I just like play a roboticist on TV, but you actually are one. <laughs> and so, what does uh, diligently robotics kind of do like paint us a picture like what the lab looks like and what the problems that you're trying to solve are and what are the problems and what's the the state-of-the-art where are we at and
0: sure wow so um, yeah diligent robotics is a company uh, based in Austin Texas for about 15 people and we are building mobile robots that have a a socially expressive presence to be um, a teammate in a hospital environment they also have an arm with a robot uh, with a with an arm with a gripper so um, essentially this platform is is able to take on logistical tasks in a hospital and we, we are looking at ways to help hospitals uh, unburden some of their frontline staff that are you know, really overburdened with fetching and gathering of things that they need for patient care. Um, and so you know, we are working with our first customers to really identify you know, what are the things that nurses and clinicians are spending time on that they don't really need to be spending time on that we could in fact automate. So kind of redefining workflows like how what is the right way that specimens should be drawn from the patient and then taken all the way down to the lab and then the results come back? Like which parts of that could we hand over to a robot to you know, run things back and forth so that the nurses and clinicians are spending their time on patient care? So really the last, um, 12 to 18 months has been a lot of that sort of product development and understanding you know, where, you know, what are the workflows and tasks that are going to drive the most value for hospitals. Um, and now we're getting out to market with our first customers and implementing some of those. It's very exciting.
1: I, you know, I secretly think, well, I guess it's no secret anymore, <laughs> is it? That, that building a human like Body is harder than building a human-like mind.
0: What do you think? Uh, I don't know. It depends on what. I know what it's we it's, mean it's a meaningless
1: that. question, but if you think about like the DARPA challenge from a few years ago, they uh-huh. said, "Okay, we want to we want you to build a robot that uh, goes up a flight of stairs, it grabs a doorknob, turns it, and opens it, and goes through it." Right. And it was supposed to do it autonomously, and then they're like, "That's never going to happen." Yeah. Let's just now <laughs> just see can you remote control it up there? And, right. And, and and nobody. Well, I think one or two did. I mean. And it's like we are. It seems to me so far from building a robot that has, say, the uh, the balance and skill of a Mm four-year-old. Like, is that is that right? Is it as hard as I think it is to do like almost anything?
0: It's hard. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a hard problem. And um, but I think it's uh, I think like the why I kind of uh, paused at your. Mind versus body question. As I think in robotics, we think of it as so much of a tightly closed loop. Um, So really, part of having the body work well is having the software control loop and the perception be fast enough and good enough that that we can make those tiny little changes to the motion as you go along. So that's you know, a big part of what people do to get around in the world is we make these gross motions and then we kind of refine it at the last minute and um, so I think that's something that we're still you know on the cusp of figuring out in robotics is how to you know get a lot of this you know control sensory control loop to be fast enough. I have
1: a question that I've asked almost every guest and their answers are almost universal Mm -hmm. Uh, 95 percent and the interesting thing about it is my answer is the other one so I'm the contrarian and um, the, the, the reason people believe we can build a general intelligence is not because anybody knows how to build one, but it's based on a simple assumption that people are machines. And if people are machines, then someday we'll build a mechanical one and it will get twice as good every two years. Do you believe people are machines? Uh,
0: I do believe that people are a very interesting, complex machine. Uh-huh.
1: So there's nothing that happens in a human that can't be explained with physics and chemistry and all of that.
0: I think that every time we find something that we think is that... We
1: shoot past it a few years then, later. Yeah.
0: Then we find something else. But it's sort of like that never-ending um, quest to uh, really define the essence of humanity. I think mm-hmm. we are going to continue to do that. And, like, and as we understand one part of the mind, we'll always find another mystery to go after.
1: I'm sure everybody asks you about Rosie the Robot. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is that show was made in 62 and it was set in 2062 so we live closer to the time the Jetsons was set in than when the Jetsons yeah, was made yeah. by a few years now and so I'm not going to say when will we get Rosie I'm going to say well, with AI there was a there was a notion that uh in 1956 these guys got together at Dartmouth and they say if we work really hard we can solve this in a summer and of course we haven't but but the reason they made that mistake was a simple assumption, and that is, they thought intelligence must be like Newton's... Yeah, that it was a a few simple rules, like Mm -hmm. Newton's laws or Maxwell's laws, and if we can just nail those, we know intelligence. Why do you think we have so underestimated (laughs) how hard robots are? Because it always seems to be like... Any minute you're gonna get something that, and now you're still at a point where you're pleasantly surprised when the stuff works. It's like, wow, that thing really did vacuum my floor. Uh, So why is it so hard?
0: Right, Uh, I mean, I think, so some of it is kind of back to the early days of AI when people thought that computer vision was gonna be solved in a summer. And, um, And so there's continually not realizing how hard, the problem is because it doesn't sound that hard, right? Like when you, can have, when you can have a robot that works really well in a factory and I give it the same thing to do every day, it's like really complex and, and you have these like beautiful, I mean, it's, it's like art when you see like a hundred robots building cars, that's amazing. And then you look at that and you're like, why can't we just put that everywhere? Like, why is that? So the, the idea that adding uncertainty to the state that those robots are operating under creates such a problem, and, and such a um, it makes the problem space that much harder. Is I think it's fascinating, but it is true. I mean, that's really the problem: is going from these very structured environments to something that's completely unstructured, like your home or.
1: Um. Yeah, the the Roomba was twenty years ago, but now I guess we have Baxter's okay. and we have Sawyer's, and, and there are at least things that. They still have to. I, when when I talk on this topic, I say the the thing you'll probably never live to see is a never is a long time. Of course, <laughs> never is a long time. Is a robot plumber, because every house is different, every bathroom is different, every problem is different, every yes. and and you almost can't even construct a use case like that's a job that is probably always going to be cheaper to have a person do. Like to build a robot that can. It's like well, at some point just hire a plumber. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, I think what you're, I mean, what we're getting to is that, um, you know, the first places that we're going to see robots really get out of the factory floor is, you know, places that are still pretty structured. Like a hospital. Like a hospital. Is that why
1: you picked it? Because it's a little bit like a factory. It's got corridors. It's got rooms. It's got a.
0: There's things you can count on. There's There's things you can expect. Um you're interacting with basically the same staff every day. So we were really interested in building a robot that was gonna be part of a team, and it was gonna be interacting with a lot of the same people every day. And those people were gonna get used to, you know, the things that Moxie does in the environment and, and be able to count on it as a teammate. Um, and so I think that's kind of an interesting aspect of some of these semi-structured environments as well. But, um, you know, the the idea that you can, you can have the robot with some expectations of the you know, size of the corridors, or even um, there's a lot of spaces in, you know, in human environments that I think would classify as this as well. We're starting to see robots in grocery stores for the same reason, I think, because a lot of, you, know, you go to a grocery store, they're all a little bit different, but there mm-hmm. are things that you can expect about them, and you can build a robot's behavior around that.
1: Yeah, I think uh, Target has one with binocular vision that goes up and down the aisles mm-hmm. and can take inventory. Yeah, DHL has EffieBot, which goes yeah. alongside a person because a DHL facility. Ingram has a swarming robot thing with like hundred robots. Yeah. Anyway, well, I would like to close uh, with two final questions. I love this line. You know, you you put this on your LinkedIn thing. My ultimate mm-hmm. vision is to create to help create a world where robots positively assist humans as teammates. So humans can have more time for the stuff in their lives they want to do and are best at so how did and that's a lot of you know what we've been talking about how did that come about like what was your own kind of hero's journey to get to that <laughs> vision
0: uh, I mean really I started off just fascinated with robots that could work with people um, but and really that's kind of it's more about how my my journey from an academia to kind of commercialization, looking for places where these robots were really going to provide value to society. And um, and I think that what I just really started being fascinated by, you know, places that there are you know people whose jobs are one thing, but they you know get asked to do a lot of other things as part of their job that maybe don't don't count as much. And hospitals and healthcare workers. We're just a really great example of this. You know, you have really passionate nurses and they're spending you know, way too much of their day on things that they didn't go to nursing school for. Um, and so I think that really counts. I think a lot of us could categorize some of our day. Like I, I would love to spend more of my day on the things that I love doing and less of the chores and things that I'd love to hand over to an agent or some other autonomy. Um, so I, I just think that's a brilliant uh, future if we can if we can create it.
1: And then final question: uh, You're clearly a fascinating person. How do people keep up with you? Where do you uh, do you write anything? Do you, are you active on social media? Like, what's the? Oh,
0: you can follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn. That's okay. where I tend to post.
1: You are. Yeah.
0: I'm at Andrea T on Twitter.
1: And that's an early user.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was at the I was at the MIT Media Lab in the early days of social media. Yeah. I had I had Friendster, I had um, MySpace, and then this new Twitter thing came yeah. about, and everybody's like, "Oh, you got to try it."
1: <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. It's been fascinating.
0: Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please consider visiting GigaOM.com, where you can find our other show, Voices in Innovation, blogs, and For all your future forward advice, please visit gigaohm.com.